Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic today is part two of the new atheism, and my guest is Dr. Glenn Kreider, who teaches in systematic theology here at the seminary. Glenn, thank you for being a part of this again. Thank you. And uh, this is a part two, which is a little bit unusual, but we spent uh, part one really working through the positions of new atheism and getting that laid out and also trying to lay uh, groundwork for how um, significant this discussion is and really the elements of it that need to be dealt with um, seriously and sincerely. And so this show is going to kind of deal with the responses to the various positions that have made its way into the public square. So Glenn, I think what we want to do first is to just review the five um, areas that we were dealing with that we say uh, arguments that new atheists put forward that seem to resonate in the public, and then and then we'll work through the responses. So what are the what are the big five from the big four? <laughs> yeah, I've tried hard to to think through. Uh, having read the literature and and have uh, watched videos, try to try to summarize um, in a, in a in a very simple way what I think the five major issues are. Uh, number one, and and this is by far most important, as it always is in in uh, theological discussions, the problem of evil, mm-hmm. and the, particularly the problem of evil in a post nine eleven world, the problem of evil and the fear that evil brings. The second is the problem of religions, and it's not simply a matter of, although it is this. A matter of religious conflict without history, throughout history, but uh, uh, the the elephant in every room is the problem of pluralism, mm-hmm. and how do we uh, uh, how do we discern truth claims of various religions? The the old claim that all religions are true, they all lead to the same place, is is easily disproven. Mm-hmm. And now uh, the question becomes which of these various truth claims is the right one, which one is to be followed, and, and that maybe the best response is no religion at all. And I think that's part of what leads to a growing percentage of the population unwilling to affirm any religion. Third is the problem of the Bible. And by problem, I mean um, the the way uh, the way the Bible has been read, and how how um, critics respond to two major issues: the presentation of God in in the Scriptures, as uh, and and the the emphasis on things like the flood and genocide, uh, that that God appears to be. Uh, harsh and cruel and uh, vindictive, uh, but at the same time, the way the Bible has been read and the Bible has been used by various fringe groups to defend all kinds of things, and maybe even to some extent by mainstream Christianity, to the Bible to defend 
slavery in the past and in the way the Bible's been, been abused in some way. The Bible's been abused, yeah. and misread, misused. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah. That's, that's a good point. Uh, there's the problem of science. Um, not all uh, scientists are atheists, and not all atheists are scientists. But there is a there's a, an amazingly optimistic view of the power of science and technology to solve all of our problems. That the increasingly the argument by militant atheists who are scientists is that um, the god of the gaps is no longer necessary because science can explain everything, even to the point of um, Lawrence Kasten's argument that that science, his hypothesis that there's scientific evidence that the universe came out of nothing. It's uh, a whole new, uh, a whole new optimism mm -hmm. and um, I'm looking for a better word uh, the idolatry uh, mm -hmm. of scientism and then there's the problem of unfulfilled expectations that there there are a lot of people who have this is part of the the growing nuns n o n e s mm -hmm. uh, people who have been disillusioned by christianity to uh, to to recognize that that uh, to whose testimony is um, I, I hear that God is a God who answers prayer. I pray and nothing happens. A God who delivers people from from harm and I wasn't delivered from harm. A, a God who protects his children and I wasn't protected. And that sometimes that's rooted, and I suspect we'll talk more about that. But sometimes that's rooted in a misunderstanding, a, a faulty teaching about God and the way He works. And sometimes it's back to full circle, back to the the problem of evil. Mm -hmm. And that how do how do people of faith, and particularly Christian faith, respond to the horrific prevalence of evil in the world? So in thinking about how to respond to these, there really are kind of two levels, it seems to me, of response. One's the kind of the engagement at the content of the claims. And then the second level is also the way in which that content and that response mm -hmm. is presented, the mm -hmm. tone that comes with it. So mm -hmm. you've got content and tone. And we talked a little bit at the end of the last show about, about tone, but I think it might be good before we <laughs> deal with the content levels of the response to, to stop and talk a little bit about how you even walk into this space and, and what kind of tone is important to bring to it and, and why that's an important part of the equation. Yeah, there, there's a stereotype, and most stereotypes have some roots in actuality. Mm -hmm. There's a stereotype of, a Christian, of Christian apologetics and Christian's engagement with culture that we have a lot of – we have all the answers, mm -hmm. and that our response is often – to very quickly condemn the question to and to provide a simple and simplistic answer to a complex question. I think what we're talking about here are several difficult and multifaceted complex issues, um, and that there is, secondly, a great deal of diversity in the way those convictions are held and the way they are expressed that uh, that lead us to and then i think third there is the the relativistic worldview the pluralistic worldview that uh, that often dismisses truth claims by well, that's your that's your view it works for you and and not for me um, and that it, so that in the midst of that 
it seems to me that listening and hearing and understanding uh, is the first and most important thing to understand as the degree that we can the the context for and the content of the objection and the claim that that oftentimes most times even these are not theoretical and ivory tower objections that people have to Christianity. They are rooted in experiences. Mm-hmm. And people sometimes are not even aware of the degree to which those experiences are formative and informative. But it, it's stunning to, to engage with somebody and to interact with somebody and then later in the conversation to learn the kind of abuse or the kind of evil that has been behind this, that that, that really the, the degree to which we are able to spend the time listening and understanding empathy, compassion, sympathy, the, those Christian virtues, uh, to speak the truth in love, as simplistic as that sounds, to uh, to do to do that really well, truth and, and love. And when we talk about empathy and compassion, that kind of thing, you're, we're not equating that with with necessarily agreement. But what we're saying is, you're moving towards an understanding of why the person right. is coming from where they're coming from. You said the content and the context. The context is very important. I mean, a simple illustration. But I have a grandmother on my um, wife's side now passed away who had a very low tolerance for Christianity because she had a father mm. who claimed to be a Christian, attended church, did you know, did all the Christian things, but in terms of the way he treated his wife and his daughter, mm. awful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so basically the, the underneath her view was if that's how Christians treat people, I don't want anything mm-hmm. to do with it. Common story. Yep. Common story. And, and so, uh, and that is, that's an important part of the equation to be aware of. Part of listening is, is I think, listening for that kind of context that then colors mm-hmm. why a person moves in the direction mm-hmm. that they move in. Another common one, it seems to me, is if someone's had very little or no exposure to the church, what they think about the church is basically what they've absorbed as a sponge in the culture. Mm-hmm. And if that happens, then uh, um, you know you, why should you be surprised they don't understand the Christian faith or that they have this or that view when it's it's popularly what's circulating about uh, about Christianity in the public square, those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah and and uh, these these are not the response to those kind of objections can't be merely an intellectual one, mm-hmm. as if that's even possible. Right, but that that to to honor the the experience and to to the degree we can understand uh, and at the at the same time um, when we have as your story mm-hmm. when we have our own stories that that provide common ground that mm-hmm. provide a, a means by which we can we can interact and yeah and, i can and i can respond i can get that i understand how mm-hmm. people react that way i have mm-hmm. people i know who've reacted mm-hmm. that way people who i care about people who i love right. so Okay. Well, now let's turn our attention to to these, and let's deal with the easiest one first, uh, which is surely the problem of evil. Uh, You know, something that every person who has who lives in a fallen world deals with on a regular basis. So, um, so what what ways in to this discussion uh, would you would you commend? I think first and foremost. 
um, we must acknowledge the the reality of evil. Mm-hmm. Um, Christians don't explicitly um, uh, deny or remove that uh, insight from the conversation, but sometimes implicitly we do, and we we jump too quickly to. Uh, what is usually the case, what is always the case, that God is acting in the midst of, mm-hmm. and that what I was starting to say usually, that mm-hmm. God often brings good and there's light in, shining in the middle of the darkness. But sometimes to jump too quickly to finding good in bad, to find light in darkness, means that we minimize <clears throat> and really dismiss the horror of evil um, and because evil is real mm-hmm. and it's it is horrific and it's um, unexplainable um, and in a real sense it is unexplainable and beyond our ability to understand the the other the other boundary marker that must be part of uh, our response is we must never attribute the cause of evil to God, mm-hmm. and that there there are prominent Christian leaders who have crossed that line recently, and uh, <clears throat> out of a, a view of God's sovereignty that says if God is sovereign, then God must be the cause of everything that happens. Well, we have to affirm is God's goodness, mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> that God is sovereign means that that evil happens uh, as part of his sovereign plan, that that he knows that evil is happening, that uh, he is not unaware, um, that he has the power to to stop it, but for reasons known only to God, he often doesn't. But we don't put the we don't put the, the the gun in God's hand to put His finger on the trigger. Mm-hmm. We 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 hold the human responsible for the evil that that was that existed, and then that leads me also to say, then there's a the whole other um, the, the fallen world, um, natural disasters, mm-hmm. which are from our perspective are a result of the world having been cursed and the the world is in rebellion against her creator and so, uh, but but again that that god's not respond god doesn't normatively send hurricanes and floods etc now might he Yes, uh, he, he has done those kind of things in in the biblical story uh, but unless we have some Information from God, some secret word from God. Western we Union ought, telegram. We ought to be careful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think John Calvin is actually is absolutely right mm-hmm. that because God is sovereign, we can know that everything that happens is part of God's plan. But as to why God allows evil to exist, we ought to shut up. Mm-hmm. Now, um, it seems to me that there are, there are other elements uh, beyond the ones that you mentioned that. Could, some of which might go something like this. First of all, to even talk about the concept of evil and to engage in the concept of evil suggests a presence of a of a morality and a design yeah. in the crea- in in the creation and, and in the midst of our lives that even allows us to have the conversation, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is an important point uh, because if there is no God and if we just simply coexist, etc., then 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 evil exists, but there's no 
there's no ground for it, and mm-hmm. there's even no ground for, in some ways, mm-hmm. for discussing how it operates as one element of the equation. Yeah, and and in recent years, the, there has been a response from the new atheists, particularly from the the four horsemen, as uh-huh. we talked earlier, that, that Dawkins and and Hitchens and Harris have have actually, and Dennett particularly, have have argued that one doesn't need to be a theist to have a basis of morality. And mm-hmm. the argument from uh, from this, we all know mm-hmm. that certain things are wrong. So then we're right back to yeah. how do you know? Right, right. Uh, but the, the appeal to survival, the appeal to life, the appeal to an evolutionary progress is an attempt to respond to the apologetic you just provided. And uh, I don't want to be completely dismissive uh, and simply dismissive of that argument, but, but eventually we have to come back to it. I think the, the way to address it is not through the um, the real extreme cases those are those are obvious mm-hmm. but to get into the into the real nitty-gritty and, and nuts and bolts so what does this look like in the way we live our lives and how how would we how would we argue that it's um, that this is the right thing or the wrong thing to do in this situation. Maybe this is a matter of personal taste. So for for example, the easy case is that almost nobody um, would defend the brutalization of children, which mm-hmm. is why there is this worldwide horror at the extremes of uh, of what ISIS is is doing mm-hmm. with, with children or with with animals. I mean, the most, uh, I haven't watched any of those vid- videos. I don't need mm-hmm. to to see that. Right. But by by accident, mm-hmm. uh, a video popped up. Uh, and started to run on Facebook, mm-hmm. where uh, where a warrior cut the head off a dog as mm-hmm. a dog. I, I, I'm still that's that's a horrifying because mm-hmm. I think there is something deep inside of us that recognizes that this is this is just wrong and yeah. that's flickerings from, of the image of God. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah there, there is, which is. Uh, uh, which which is a fact and a and a reality, and it, it provides, I think, uh, a means for a discussion about the the problem of evil and how then to how then to address those questions. I think another element of this conversation, and a part of a, a part of the conversation, is the idea that what an evil world does is it affirms two things simultaneously that are important. That our choices do have consequences, yes. have moral consequences, and that there is an accountability built into the world, mm-hmm. in the design of the world, that is to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. That we are not gods, mm-hmm. and uh, and so that we don't have control. Exactly mm-hmm. right. So so all these elements are kind of interacting with each other. It doesn't it doesn't provide an answer that takes you through <laughs> the forest, if mm-hmm. I can say it that way. But it puts you on a road in which you recognize that the forest may not be designed as some are claiming. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, that, and that, I think, is an important uh, yeah. thing to realize as you have what is a very complex discussion. Most pastors who find themselves in the midst of ministering pastorally, in the midst of tragedy, you know, when, when the mother asks, you know, why did this happen to us, are quite honest and say, that's a question I can't answer. Yeah, many times the right answer is I don't know, mm-hmm. but but this answer also has to always be part of the conversation. That a world that looks like it's out of control is not 
outside of the control of a good God mm-hmm. who who is at work in it, doing things many times of which we are unaware, um, but, but that he actually has a plan and will one day make things right. And it brings us right back to the heart of the gospel story that the creator of the universe cares for this world, he loves this world, and he, he loves it to the extent that he has taken upon himself in Jesus of Nazareth all the effects of sin, death, and hell, and, um, and, and has conquered them through the resurrection of the dead and provides through that the hope that uh, we too will be resurrected and all will be made new. And that the, the problem of – I think it's easy for us to get stuck in trying to provide answers to questions we really can't answer, uh, and that that conversation needs to be taken to the place where we, where we pro, uh, proclaim and encourage people to believe in the hope of the gospel. Because the hope of the gospel is the ultimate statement against evil and yes. the vindication of the righteous and the establishment of justice and the movement towards peace and reconciliation right. and the very things that undercut um, that undercut our uh, undercut our righteousness and undercut our uh, reflect our mortality mm-hmm. as well at the same time, which is important to remember. Mm-hmm. Well, um, obviously, we could keep talking about this one, uh, and we have four more to go, and we're almost <laughs> to the end of the first segment. So, uh, why don't you state the the second um, the second issue, and we'll just set it up to come back to. Yeah, the the second one I've identified is the problem of religion, um, and there, the two issues are uh, the religious conflict throughout history, and the rise of pluralism and 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 the exclusive claims of of various religions. So who's right? And to make it even more challenging for Christians and for our response is the uh, the multiple of denominations and and claims within Christianity. So uh, the, uh, the, the pretty standard objection is if Christianity is true, then why do Christians not agree with one another? Why is there such diversity uh, among Christians? And why is there uh, the degree of, <clears throat> of uh, Inflammatory rhetoric and criticism of other Christians as well. That 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 maybe maybe you ought to be able to get along with one another if you want me to be part of you. I mean, I, I can have people criticize me mm-hmm. anytime. I don't have to go to church to right. to hear that kind of uh, that kind of thing. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. 
Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. We've discussed uh, and introduced how to interact with the problem of evil, and now we've turned to the issue of pluralism in the many religions that exist in our world and the variety of ways in which those uh, that issue is brought forward, just the sheer variety of religion at one level, just the, all the choices that are there. A second, uh, perhaps more subtle one, is the way in which religion has acted and functioned in the world. The uh, association with religion with violence in particular is a, another element of this. And then the third part of it is, so I guess we got a trinity on, mm-hmm. on, uh, on how religion is an issue here, has to do with the claim that Christianity makes that it's true, but then the variety within Christianity and the way Christians interact with each other in the midst of that. So um, this is a little too neat and clean because this all gets mixed together. But uh, but let's go through those one at a time. Let's start first with just the variety of religions that we're dealing with and how to think about that. You've already made the statement that they can't all be simultaneously true. There's no way that can work. So So where do you go from there? Yeah, I think the point you made is a very important one. That pluralism has always existed. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, if you read through, if you read the the Book of Acts, Acts mm-hmm. seventeen is mm-hmm. looks like a really postmodern world. Yeah, uh, pluralism is what is new is the exposure to uh, the both the both because of the media because we we do know what's going on around the world, but also as these religions in America, as people of various religions move into neighborhoods, and there is this 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 exposure. I think a, a, a significant factor there has been the 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 approach, uh, whether explicitly or implicitly, that has argued Christianity is right and every other religion is wrong. That we have everything about Christianity and everything Christians say is true, and everything about other religions is false. It's John Hicks' testimony. Mm-hmm. It's very similar to mine, having been taught. That uh, uh, that people who are not Christians uh, eat their babies and they're they're evil people all the time and they're like, this is this is just uh, crazy mm-hmm. when when you actually meet that and again this was his testimony to meet people of other religions and to observe they're not more or less moral than than Christians are that Christianity had been <clears throat> equated with morality. Uh, the other factor that I think is important is the the value of postmodernism that there is, that, that there is religion that there's truth found in a variety of religions and that it's not it's all right and all wrong but there's mixture of truth and error a mixture of good and bad in the practice of every religion. And I think it's important for Christians to acknowledge that we have been, and we corporately, have sometimes been on the side, on the wrong side. We've been on the side of oppression, and I mean, it's 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 a it, it's true that that our treatment of Native Americans and slavery is is not a, a a a shining light in our history. But it's not just a corporate um, historical re- response. I tell people all the time uh, in in teaching 
And it's easy for me to perform for 50 minutes for an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, you wouldn't like me very much if you spent time with me all the time. Mm-hmm. That there, that we are, that we're all sinners. That we are, that we are all flawed. And that to to address the claims of other religions from a posture of humility and co- and compassion, it seems to me, is is an appropriate and helpful one. But to to address the claims of exclusivity and to point out to people that this exclusive claim and that exclusive claim can't both be true, and that uh, that a choice is necessary. Either Jesus is the only way, or he's not. There, there really, are, there really is no other possibility, no other option. Yeah. So, so part of this has to do with with sorting through a, a variety of things. W- one is the acknowledgement. You know, you know, Judaism has some interesting values. We started off by saying pluralism's always been with us. Yeah. You know, Judaism and the early earliest church existed in the midst of a Roman Greco-Roman world full of a plethora of gods and a plethora of religious options. Uh, I like to tell people the ancient world was very religious. They had 150 holidays, religious holidays every year, and then I make a joke about, we ought to adopt that calendar, that'd be nice. <laughs> uh, but uh, and, and so religion in this, this, this sense of the other has, is with people, no matter, no matter what faith they have. So part of engagement, it seems to me, this is actually the lesson of Acts 17, mm-hmm. is touching on that instinct that people have built into them because they're made in the image of God, that there is something else out there and that there is something that should make sense out of the lives that we have, that has a purpose and a direction, which most people, I think, instinctively sense and And, have to suppress. Yeah, and to come back over and over again, I think think Acts 17 is Paul's exposition of his argument in Romans 1, Mm -hmm. that God actually has revealed himself, his eternal power and divine nature, plainly, clearly. It's known and understood by everyone. Mm -hmm. And that when, in response to these other religions, Paul, without ever using the Bible, instead Mm -hmm. engaging the culture by quoting pagan poets, can, can tell the story of redemption, the Creator who is who doesn't live in temples built by human hands, but but has sent his son. I mean, it, it's 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 the the story of the Bible. It's the meta narrative that that we have to keep coming back to over and over and over again. And 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 I think it also in these conversations, it's helpful to point out that that story actually is told in other religions. It's mm-hmm. told without the significance of Christ, of course. But it, the reason why it's told in every religion is because I, I think God has planted it deeply inside of us and in the world that he has created. So there are instincts towards the spiritual that exist all around us, but the 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 problem on the other side is how that's all put together in right. these various religions and being aware that you know a lot of people don't even realize they may hear that Christianity makes an exclusive claim but they don't hear the exclusive claim right. in the exclusive right. claim you know that they, they um, the, you know why is it that there has to be a Christ how is he different than any, every other human being that's walked the earth those kinds of elements to the story people who are 
people of faith, people who are Christians, need to understand what makes mm -hmm. Christianity's claim to exclusivism mm -hmm. exclusive mm -hmm. and how, how that works. That's certainly a part of the question. Well, that's one facet. Well, obviously, we're not going to exhaustively deal with all these. Um, but the second one is the idea of the association with religion with violence. Mm -hmm. and, and this is one that, in my mind, uh, in many ways, you simply have to own up to to some degree, um, that, that there are things that have been done in the past in the name of religion that don't reflect the best of what religious faith is supposed to be about. Uh, it reminds me of something else in combining it with the previous idea that there are instincts in people, mm -hmm. is that um, you know I will meet people of other faiths who can be perfectly good and generous and compassionate hosts. I, I, I remember our trip to Turkey. Uh, where when I first said to Sally, um, on this sabbatical we're going to go to Turkey, and she says, you're going to Turkey. <laughs> and, and her reason was particularly she didn't have any interest in diving into the middle of a predominantly uh, Islamic culture. Well, when in fact we made the trip and, and she went, we were wonderfully hosted by many people. Uh, and uh, fascinating conversation. You talk to her today, she say it's one of the most mm -hmm. Enlightening, eye-opening mm. trips I've ever taken in my life, mm. um, and and what she was meeting were people who reflected, if I can say it this way, the the best of this other faith, and in the midst of that, real recognized there there are there are ways to interact and relate that are that are potentially very healthy, mm. Mm -hmm. um, that comes out of that context. So I put that all together to say um, uh, that. On the one hand, we have to own up to the places where we have not lived up to the standards that we have set religiously. And on the other hand, I think it's worth being able to recognize and see when other people do uh, move towards uh, at least some of the best of the moral standards that are reflective yeah. of their own faith. Yeah, I think that's a much better approach than a not uncommon approach from Christians to say that um, sure, Christianity has been the cause of oppression and conflict, but atheism has too. Yeah. As if, as if somehow we're okay because they did the same yeah, thing. Yeah. Or they're we're, worse. You're bad, and we're bad, yeah. so we're all bad. We're, we're all the, bad. When the reality is, we should be. We're held to a higher standard. That's that we, right. And I think we ought to own up to that. That's I think right. you're exactly right. Uh, and that that actually leads to the third. Good. And I think we ought to own up to the degree to which. Christians have fought other Christians, mm -hmm. and uh, that we, what we desperately need is a is a reminder, and to, as a reminder, that there are things that Christians hold in common. There are things the denial of which is a denial of Christianity, and then there's a great deal of diversity in the way Christians live out that faith, and that rather than diversity being a problem, I think unity in the in the midst of diversity is in fact at the very heart of the biblical story. I, mm -hmm. I think God loves diversity. I think God uh, enjoys diversity, and, and we might say, but God didn't create all of that diversity. Uh, but that's that's also a, uh, a demonstration of the way God responds to rebellion and sin, that, that the diversity of cultures came out of uh, the, his judgment at the Tower of Babel. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not calling cultures a, a judgment. I'm calling them a great gift from God that comes in the midst of, uh, in the midst of that judgment.
that God, I think God loves diversity, and He loves um, he, he loves seeing people of various tongues and tribes and nations worshiping Him together. I don't think God is troubled that some people like guitar music and some people don't. I think I think uh, God loves that diversity. When we get to heaven, we'll probably have sections, music sections of little variety when we get there. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and of course, one of the interesting things about this is 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 being for Christians to be able to understand, if I can say it this way, what's central to their faith, right, right. and what is, what is actually legitimately up for discussion. Okay. And sometimes we don't distinguish those things enough, mm-hmm. and have enough appreciation for how theology itself works. Yeah. To know where those judgments are being made. Yeah, and Acts 17 is helpful here. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a a very simple summary of the essence of the Christian faith, the the, the creeds. Really, mm-hmm. I mean, Rich Mullins, who who taught out several generations now the Apostles' Creed by putting it to music to remind us of these are things that Christians hold in common. The other things. Not to the same. We don't hold as nearly as, as uh, tightly as we do these. Okay, let's move to the third now. We're going to have to move quickly through the last three. The third third one that we're dealing with here is uh, identify the problem of the Bible and okay. the way the Bible has been used. Mm-hmm. Um, there, it, 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 it's easy to read through the biblical stories and find examples of. Uh, of violence, to find examples of oppression, to find you know, the flood and genocide, etc. But but I think those stories have to be read in light of the big picture. And it, for, let's just give you one example. It changes everything if we read the flood narrative as the picture of an angry God who lost control and just flew off the handle and destroyed everyone. Crushed the bugs. It, it changes yeah. things. If yeah. you read that and hear God uh, express the reason for the flood was his grief and pain mm-hmm. at the violence that the earth, uh, that, 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 that humans had brought onto the earth. And it changes things when we, when we read those stories and ask, whether the language of the biblical text demands that God is the cause of this, or if God withdraws His hands of protection and allows the the, the waters to to cover the earth, or God withdraws His hand of protection and allows the earth to swallow the rebels, or if God uh, so, it's, it's, whether it's whether it's whether it's it's different whether it's God actively doing it or withdrawing His hand at the end at the end of the day. God is still responsible. God is still accountable. But I do think it, it, it is important to distinguish between that which God actively does and that which God allows. But I think it also is important that we acknowledge that, that God is not capricious. He is not, he is not an, an angry God that loses control of himself, that the judgment that God brings on the earth, the, the 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 judgment that God brings on the earth is almost always. I'm trying to think of a counterexample. Mm-hmm. It's almost always after a long period of warning and of even the even the Canaanites is 400 years after the event in Genesis 9 mm-hmm. where the Canaanites are cursed and even in the midst of of the conquest there are great. Uh, d- um, 
acts of grace on behalf of the Canaanites. So I think the whole story has to be told. But again, back to honesty, mm-hmm. we we don't just say those stories didn't exist, and we don't revert back to the Marcionite heresy and say that was a different God and the New Testament God is a is a different God. We we we, we actually have to, and this would be my my bottom line. Let's let's instead of just dismissing the story like as if you understand it, let's actually talk about and let's look at this text and let's have a let's have a conversation about it. I've listened to your mm. your arguing against mm. Christianity. Uh-huh. Could could we actually now talk about this and to spend the time that might be my one of my one of my constant mantras that it takes time to engage people well. It takes time to to have these kind of interactions. It it takes a great deal of time. The other thing that is a part of this conversation, it seems to me, is the idea of the accountability. One is placing these stories in context, but the other is the emphasis on accountability. Because in the end, there's no escape from from the issue of judgment and even violence. Mm-hmm. Because when we come to the end of the biblical story, We've got a pretty comprehensive judgment that's right. coming in right. which which our accountability as creatures to a creator is stated very, very directly with very painful ends for mm-hmm. some people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so facing up to the idea of accountability is important. The flip side of this is a sense of entitlement that people mm-hmm. tend to feel that God owes me mm-hmm. in one way or another. And so if God acts against human beings, that somehow that is inherently unjust when it when it may not be that's why putting some of these stories in context is important i remember in thinking about genocide which always troubled me and i think i think the stories of genocide no matter where they appear should trouble people mm-hmm. um, but in in reading the pentateuch as we worked up to this unique and the other important part of the genocide story in the new, in the old testament is this was a unique thing that god was doing at the time much like the flood was unique you know when the flood was over god said I'm not doing that again, again. um uh, reading the nature of the society what they did with their children how they lived etc you know the if i can make an analogy the revulsion that many feel towards the way isis treats other people who are outside their circle um, is a reminder of the way kind of this society, this Canaanite society is being described. And God says, I'm going to wipe, try and wipe the slate clean here um, through what it is that I'm asking you to do. So uh, those are, are features that don't remove all the pain, but they certainly help to explain what's mm-hmm. going on right. as opposed to just this random violent act, which is the way it tends to be portrayed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and the the, the in, undeniable fact is that nobody gets out of this thing alive. Mm-hmm. So uh, there, th- and that reality has to be at least part of the, the the conversation. That that there there must be some explanation for universal death and uh, and and consequences that, that that points to some accountability to something beyond us Luke 13 1 to 5 is a fascinating passage because in it you know Jesus asked the question uh, you know but whether it be by natural disaster or human act mm-hmm. whether some people are worse sinners than right. others and of course his response is consistent in both cases unless you repent you likewise will perish right. and so 
the bottom line here is is that if there's a creator and we're create creatures and he has created a moral world in which we are to be responsive to him, we're all accountable to mm-hmm. that God. That's right. That's right. And we can't forget that bottom exactly. line. Yeah, and, and to constantly remind people of that. Yeah. Okay, four and five. Let's let's uh, we got a very little time here, so mm-hmm. let's try and move through the last two quickly. The problem of science. Um, Mike I'm not a scientist, um, but here's my conviction that um, in the 20th century, Christianity accepted by default, eventually, accepted by default, a conflict between science and the Bible that has left us in this kind of a state. We're forcing people to make a choice they probably shouldn't make. They shouldn't make, because yeah. the reality is if Romans 1 is true, mm-hmm. And it is. Uh-huh. Uh, God has revealed Himself in what He has made. So, as we study the book of nature, to use language Christians have used for years, right. we study the book of nature and we study the Bible. Those those two books. We're seeing the two hands of God. We see the two hands of God, yeah. and they are they are harmonious. They are they are not they're complementary. They're not contradictory. Mm-hmm. They're not in conflict with each other. Now. Now, the reality is it looks like conflict because of interpretation of the, 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 the book of nature so and the tension the comes from our inability to read what's exactly going on. Exactly right. Yeah. So that, that, that instead of dismissing science as uh, atheistic and uh, opposing the Bible and opposing God, let's, let's, actually, uh, let's actually engage this conversation from the inside. And, and I, I would call for a, a generation of Christian scientists, mm-hmm. not the religion, but right. and Christian lawyers and Christian uh, doctors and, and Christian journalists to actually uh, do the faith in the midst of this, and, and to do it do it well as Christians. I, that that I, th- I think we bought into the spirit of the age, and we've given away something that's very important that we should not lose. Well, that's probably a podcast all in the, all unto itself. So we'll save the rest mm-hmm. of that for later. The last uh, the last area. The problem of unfilled, fulfilled expectations. Uh, that, that what do we do when Christianity does not work? Um, I, I, I still think that Philip Yancey's disappointment with God might be the best thing ever written on this subject. Uh, what do we do when? When uh, God doesn't behave as we wish He had, mm-hmm. or as we have been taught that He should, as we have begged Him to act, and and Yancey concludes that the, the that that life in a fallen world with a uh, with the horrific evil that exists in it that doesn't work the way it was designed to work uh, inevitably leads to. Um, our disappointment with God. He calls us not to deny that, but to to admit it and to um, and, and really to embrace the uh, the reality of life in a fallen world and that struggle. And, and then says, but but at the end of the day, uh, as difficult as it is to deal with disappointment with God as a believer, it is infinitely worse to do it as a non-believer. And the flip side of that, of course, is is that there is the hope, and this is part of the faith, that in the end, this uh, it does all get rectified right. and put right, right, so that in the end, eschatology and the hope of the end is the balancing factor to where we find ourselves now, because we're not at the end of the story. Right. Right. 
Um, well, uh, once again, Glenn, I want to thank you for coming in and, and kind of helping us negotiate the terrain of thinking about how to interact on the issues of atheism and thinking through um, these kinds of conversations. I'm virtually certain all of us have had conversations in one way or another in which these kinds of arguments and discussions have come up sincerely raised and therefore needing to be sincerely Address. So I thank you for coming in and helping us with this. And we thank you for being a part of the table, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.